As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Hello and welcome to the show that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis with me, Ruth Jackson, and Professor Alistair McGrath. Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com, where you can also find lots of great articles, resources, and podcasts. That's premierunbelievable.com. But now for today's show. In this series, C.S. Lewis expert Professor Alistair McGrath is delving into the Space Trilogy, arguably one of Lewis's lesser-known works of fiction. We'll be exploring the three books in the trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, Perilandra and That Hideous Strength. Do we have any idea where the names of the human characters in this book come from? I have to say, I haven't come across any persuasive theories myself um what most people think is lewis is clearly um picking up on aspects of certain individual prominent thinkers and perhaps is picking together letters of their names or something like that to try and give these people their names i i personally don't see persuasive um explanations of where these names come from Alistair, there's quite a confusing bit in the final chapter of the book where Lewis seems to imply that Elwyn Ransom is a pseudonym. I mean, what what's going on there? What is Ransom's real name? Does that have an impact on what's possibly one of the most famous lines in Perilandra? It's not for nothing that you're named Ransom if, he, if he's not really named Ransom. Do you have any idea what's going on there at all, Alistair? I personally find this this throwaway line really quite difficult to to understand um i have thought about it. i'm very happy to reflect on what i think is going on i think what it what it may refer to is that um ransom is an archetypal figure in other words that he is in effect um how shall i put this being portrayed as a savior figure or or something like that or there's a hint of that and that's why um you know, it's very interesting just to make the comparison with the Chronicles of Narnia, where, you know, is Aslan known as Aslan everywhere? You know, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where basically you have this idea there's a bigger context, a bigger framework, and in this specific corner, it's Ransom, but elsewhere, it might be something else. In other words, what Lewis is hinting at here of what I think is a greater narrative behind this and uh, maybe Ransom is playing this role in this story, but he's also in other stories that Lewis isn't necessarily telling. So Anger is, is really opening up a deeper dimension to this. It's trying to say it's not just this story. This story is emblematic or representative of something bigger. But again, Lewis does leave this a little bit 
undefined. And therefore, we are left to reflect on this, but there are no obvious answers. And I, my, my hunch is the best one is, in effect, the kind of motif you find in the qualities of Narnia, that somebody goes into different worlds and plays the same role in each of them, but is known by a different name and appears in a different form in each of those worlds. But that's me speculating, I'm afraid. I don't know the answer. Alistair, there seems to be quite a lot of niche knowledge incorporated into kind of the whole of the space trilogy. In this book, we see sort of knowledge of space travel and planets. And then in That Hideous Strength, we see perhaps some technological knowledge, scientific knowledge. As a scientist yourself, do you think Lewis is actually drawing on genuine science or is he just making some of this stuff up? What what do you think, Alistair? Well, I think there are two things you need to bear in mind. One was, of course, that... um, by this stage, there was quite a significant genre of science fiction. So Lewis could pick up on some of these ideas from other sources. But of course, Lewis also was um, a fellow of Morden College Oxford, and there were scientists at Morden College Oxford. He would have talked to them over lunch. And it's quite possible he would have asked them to explain these things. So I think Lewis had ample resources to help him answer these questions. I have to say that... um, when I read all three of these, I say Lewis clearly knows something about everything, but there are points where you just feel it's not quite as, doesn't feel quite right. Um, but nevertheless, it's good enough for the purposes of telling a story and making some very important points. I mean, I guess there's things like Western Divine and Ransom gaining weight as they approach Mars. Is, th- is that realistic or, or things like that just kind of, you know, a sort of flourish to make it um, seem a bit more well, realistic? Actually, I put that. I mean, the answer is, um, if they are living in uh, an environment where there is really no gravity, then as you approach any significant body having a mass like a planet, you are going to increase in weight. I mean, because that's how these things work. Uh, You experience weightlessness in space, but when you approach a planet or a moon, then something else will happen. So it, it 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 is true, and he makes the point. Um, I'm not always sure it's essential to his narrative, but I think what Lewis is doing is trying to trying to get his readers to to say, look, trust me on the science. But actually, what I'm really writing about isn't the science. It's the deeper question of human nature and how we can go wrong. And our science, unfortunately, can help us to go wrong really badly. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I have a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season, featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Inti Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash C.S. Lewis. That's premierinsight.org forward slash C.S. Lewis. Thank you. 
Now, Alistair, there's quite a lot of nakedness in this book and also in Perilandra, the second book in the trilogy. We've sort of touched a little bit on whether that might be one of the reasons that these haven't been turned into films. But is it significant that there's so much nakedness in the book, do you think? Well, I think I think there is a lot of nakedness there. And I think it is theologically significant because, of course, um, Lewis is picking up on um, the narrative we find in the book of Genesis where Adam and Eve were naked and it didn't bother them, you know, and then they became ashamed of it. And what, so Lewis may be, if you like, playing on the idea of nakedness and innocence and then loss of innocence leading to a rethinking of what we need to, to appear like. So it's quite interesting. And I think Lewis is, really almost like using nakedness as a as an Im- image of innocence here and of course the theme of sin and the fall is quite significant in uh, perilandra in particular so i think that you know this may be his way of exploring this but of course it would have been slightly um unsettling for some of his readers who really regarded references to nakedness to be to be off limits really i mean things have changed since then but certainly at the time, this would probably have been seen as um, making it difficult for certain kinds of people to read this book. I mean, is it significant that they were naked on the spaceship? And so why did Ransom have to travel naked in his coffin in the second one? I guess if we're talking about kind of innocence, if all of the men were naked on the spaceship and perhaps Western and um, and Divine aren't necessarily innocent is that confusing or is that just because it was easier to be naked because it was hot well i'm afraid lewis doesn't really tell us i mean i I think that it's great fun saying let's let's see if we can work out a good explanation for this because um you know i mean why is the green lady naked that's another question we're going to ask here i think i think the answer is that, that lewis is is picking up on the theme of nakedness um and opening up various ways in which we could take it but he doesn't actually explicitly take us in any direction. I think we're, we're left wondering about this. Of course, a, a, a more cynical interpreter of those might say, we want to make his narrative more interesting, and therefore he spiced it up a bit. Um, I'm not quite sure if he does spice it up all that much. I'm not quite sure what added benefits arise from it. So I, I, I you know, why, why does Ransom have to, have to travel naked? I don't know. And Lewis doesn't really <laughs> help us here. Um, so I guess you know we just keep coming back to that one. But presumably it's significant if if the Green Lady and Ransom are naked when when they are sort of on Perilandra, but then Weston is clothed. I guess there is perhaps maybe some significance in that. Well, there might be. And another thing that there might be is this idea that um, we have to, in effect, um, in entering another world, almost put on its clothes. You know, divine. I think is referred to as putting on his Malachandrian clothes, something like that. And and there's this issue about whether, you know, in effect, what what is being described here is a process of going from one planet to another. And in doing so, you leave behind the clothes of one world and put on the clothes of another world. But again, I'm not quite clear why Lewis uses that device or what he wants us to do with that. Thank you for listening to this C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson. We were hearing there from Professor Alistair McGrath, talking about one of Lewis's lesser-known works of fiction, the Space Trilogy. 
Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com, where you can also find lots of great articles, resources and podcasts. That's premierunbelievable.com. Thank you for listening and see you next time.